States around the country have passed and are passing laws that make it illegal to engage in or advocate for the boycott of the apartheid government in Israel. Filmmaker Abby Martin fought back against these laws. She said they violated the Constitution and the cherished right to free speech, and she won. Today, we'll talk about this landmark battle for free speech and the First Amendment. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Real Story on The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. We bring you independent programming three days a week, every week. If you enjoy this show, if you support independent media, become a patron of our program by going to patreon.com forward slash The Socialist Program. Become a subscriber today. We are happy to be joined by filmmaker Abby Martin and constitutional rights attorney Mara Verhaden Hilliard. Abby Martin produces invaluable video and podcast resources through The Empire Files. Check out her work at TheEmpireFiles.tv and their Patreon at Patreon.com forward slash Empire Files. Mara Verhaden Hilliard is the executive director of the Washington, D.C.-based Partnership for Civil Justice Fund, PCJF, and she is also the director at the Center for Protest, Law, and Litigation. Abby, Mara, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Glad to be with you. Thank you so much. This is big. I mean, welcome news, especially coming in the middle of this global uprising in support of the Palestinian people in the wake of another round of Israeli bombing of Gaza and forcible evictions of Palestinian people from their homes. I want to read a press release that was issued by the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund and the Council of American Islamic Relations National Legal Team about your case, Abby, and then I want to get your comment and Mara as the attorney. I want to get your view about what this means for constitutional rights and free speech going forward. Here's from the press release issued earlier this week. In an order released today, Judge Mark Cohen ruled that the university system of Georgia violated journalist and filmmaker Abby Martin's constitutional rights when it canceled her speaking engagement on a college campus because she refused to sign a state-mandated oath pledging not to engage in boycotts of Israel. Martin is a well-known advocate of the boycott, divestment, and sanctions BDS movement against Israel, which the court ruled is protected by the First Amendment. Abby Martin, you won. Let's just talk about what actually happened, what happened in Georgia with your speaking engagement, and why you chose to file this lawsuit. Absolutely. I was supposed to give a speech at a media literacy conference in Georgia, Georgia Southern University, which is a state-affiliated institution, back in February of 2020. And it wasn't 
even about Palestine. It was just about critical media literacy in general. I was told that in order to receive an honorarium as an independent contractor, I must sign a pledge to not boycott Israel. I was completely appalled that I was asked to basically renounce my political beliefs in order to work, you know, forfeit my constitutional rights in order to work in the state of Georgia. And so I refused. The conference fell apart and I felt completely demoralized. I didn't know what to do about it. They kind of ghosted me, the organizers, and they just never responded to me again. And so I just put it out there on Twitter, you know, knowing that something deeply wrong had happened, but I didn't know what to do about it. And So I was contacted by CARE about how we had a legal case here. And then knowing Mara and all of her excellent work with PCJF, I linked up with her and added her to the case. And she, you know, she's a powerhouse. It was incredible to have these two entities working together to launch this lawsuit. And so we basically decided to sue the state of Georgia in March of 2020. And what I think is really interesting is just days after filing the lawsuit, Netanyahu basically boasted that his Ministry of Strategic Affairs had lobbied state legislatures to pass these laws. It seemed to directly respond to the lawsuit because it was really days afterward. And he went on Twitter just saying, you know, whoever boycotts us will be boycotted. We've worked really hard to pass these laws across the U.S. And I can't help but think just replacing the word Israel with like Russia, you know, how outrageous and beyond the realm of possibility that seems to actually have to sign a contract to pledge fealty to Russia and then have the Russian president take to Twitter and basically brag that he had helped pass these laws across the U.S. So it's just astounding that a foreign nation, you know, has done this and really openly, you know, committed this direct interference that we're told Russia has done against our sacred democracy here. So we sat on this case for, you know, a year and a half and COVID stalled it. And it was just incredible news and absolutely thrilling news to get this verdict on the heels of this vicious onslaught against Gaza, because I don't know if it has anything to do with the verdict, but it just couldn't be better timing to really push this movement forward and pursue the urgent task of boycott divestment sanctions. Mara Verhayden Hilliard was one of the attorneys on the case. Mara, as I mentioned, is the executive director of the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund. Mara, in the press release that your organization and CARE put out, you mentioned that the court relied heavily on the case NAACP versus Claiborne, which you also identify as the Supreme Court's landmark decision protecting the right to boycott. Talk about the significance of the case and also a little bit more about that case, NAACP versus Claiborne. Well, this is, as at the end you were saying, a major victory and a really important one, particularly at this moment in time, when so many people across the United States are looking at what is happening to the Palestinian people and trying to understand what they can do to stand up for justice. And with the massive racial justice demonstrations sweeping across the United States, there's really a a new level of consciousness now in terms of the right of oppressed people to be able to stand up for themselves and to throw off oppression. And the BDS movement is in the time-honored tradition of peaceful, nonviolent, First Amendment protected political activity. 
When you think about, for example, the Montgomery bus boycotts, you think about Cesar Chavez and the farm workers' grape boycotts, and of course, the boycott of apartheid South Africa. These have been very central moments of movement organizing in the United States that reached a broader population, brought people into a struggle in a way that many people can participate, and actually changed the dynamic, changed what was happening on the ground. And what Georgia did is in 2016, it passed this law, which restricted anyone who was contracting with the state of Georgia in their First Amendment, their lawful, their protected, constitutionally protected activity, and says that if you contract with the state of Georgia, then you have to sign basically a loyalty oath saying that you agree you will not engage in any boycott of the country of Israel, and that if you are so engaged, you would have to renounce it. You would literally have to renounce your views. So not only is this a restriction on your First Amendment right to engage in lawful, political, First Amendment-protected boycott activity, but it's also compelling speech. It is the state telling someone what they must say, telling them what they must express. And these are among the reasons that the law was ruled unconstitutional by the judge this past week. The case that you're referring to, Claiborne Hardware versus NAACP, that was a seminal case in the Supreme Court, and it grew out of the boycotts of racist business owners in the South, where there were extensive boycotts going on, and there were many different people participating in them, different groups, different organizations, because of the breadth of it. And this company, Claiborne Hardware, sued the NACP, challenging them, saying that the boycott was unlawful. And the case took a long time to wind through the courts. I mean, these boycotts were going on in the 60s. This case was decided, I think, 1982, finally. But in that seminal Supreme Court case, the court acknowledged that boycott activity is itself a First Amendment protected activity. And that is crucial to understand. And that was really what was being challenged here, because the state of Georgia was saying that Claiborne did not apply. Abby, why were you going to speak at the University of Georgia? What was your talk about that day? Well, that's what's so fascinating about this, Brian, is that my talk was just about critical media literacy and just educating people about media. I had no intent to even talk about Palestine. And I think that that really shows you the crux of the problem here is that it's beyond what you're actually intending to do. This applies to all independent contractors that are just contracting with the state. So, for example, when Hurricane Harvey happened, I remember in Texas, that was a shocking story that arose out of that, that independent contractors contracting with the state of Texas were given these loyalty pledges <laughs> that they had to sign in order to get hurricane relief funding from the state. I mean, it's just wrap your mind around that. It doesn't matter if you're a substitute teacher contracting, if you're a construction worker, or if you're an emergency relief like aid worker. You know, in my case, I was receiving an honorarium from a state university. But this applies to 10, I mean, tens of thousands of people are signing these contracts across the United States. This is happening in more than two dozen states across the country. And people are just signing away 
their First Amendment rights without even really realizing it, I think, because a lot of people don't read these contracts. And this is just such a chilling effect, which I think is the main intent behind these laws. I mean, they know they know that BDS is inevitably going to pressure, mount a pressure campaign, and we're already seeing that take hold across the world. But we know that Israel has done this preemptively. They have worked tirelessly to do this. We saw Netanyahu brag about that himself, but tirelessly to pass these restrictive measures, A, to create a chilling effect against pro-Palestine speech, but B, because they want to preemptively nip in the bud the growing movement of justice that they know will basically hold them accountable inevitably for their crimes, Brian. And I am thrilled at the judge's decision here. It was the right decision, and now we're waiting to see what will happen in terms of the Georgia State Legislature, if they're going to appeal this or not. Because we also know that over the last year, an Israeli consulate official and another direct foreign interference measure came to the Georgia State Legislature and actually tried to change the law to render my case moot. So they have very clearly attempted to maintain the law on the books. So it's going to be very interesting to see what they decide to do moving forward and if there is a difference of opinion there and then what that will mean for the case. This is obviously not the end of the story. It may not even be the end of this particular case, depending on what the state of Georgia does. But let's just help the audience also understand how things actually work in terms of people's rights and the sort of evolution, or in some cases, the devolution of law or law granting or or depriving people of rights. There's always a case that sets a precedent And then there's a continuing battle in the courts at different levels. Ultimately, it's not only about what happens in the courtroom. It's also about what happens in the community, in the neighborhoods, in the street, in the media. In other words, the courts are not immune from politics. But what will happen now with this case? Because as we've been talking about, it's not just Georgia. It's in many other states. And you've also been working a great deal on the political efforts by reactionaries, by especially Republican state legislators, legislatures, and others to criminalize dissent, to create new laws that inhibit free speech. Anyway, in the big trajectory here, what comes next with this case and how significant? Is this the precedent-setting case? Will this be sort of the landmark case in this free speech fight? Right now, there are a approximately 35 anti-BDS laws or executive orders that have been passed across the country. And they take the form of either, you know, a governor's executive order or a legislature passing a law. And they tend to be either that they are restricting contractors, as in Abby's situation, and saying, you know, if you are going to get paid by the state with any state funds, you have to sign this loyalty pledge, or they sometimes also operate with restrictions on where the state will put any investment funds, that they will not invest in any funds or entities that participate, or that those entities have to swear that they will not participate in any boycott actions. So we're seeing these laws, which are clearly an effort to suppress speech, to suppress organizing, to suppress a movement for change. At the same time, as you mentioned, as the anti-protest laws, 
that are being enacted in rapid fire across the country. These laws have been being enacted now for several years. But interestingly enough, just in the period after the right-wing fascist insurrection attempt and attack on the Capitol, we saw more and more of these laws being enacted by the right wing, but intended to suppress progressive movements. And these are anti-protest laws that seek to criminalize nonviolent, peaceful protest, lifting liability for drivers that run over protesters, that create these heightened penalties for nonviolent classic civil disobedience, turning them into massive felonies that sometimes have huge fines, including fines that try and reach any entity or person who's accused of supporting, even in a lawful way, anyone else who then ends up being criminalized on these laws. I mean, the, the reach and the expanse is huge. And I think we have to look at all of these in a global framework to understand what's happening, which is you can see the effect of, as we know historically in the United States, of movements in the streets and what causes change in our society, which is always people on the move. It's people in motion. It's people taking action. And over the decades, the Supreme Court moving with the consciousness of society increasingly ruled in favor of First Amendment rights, recognizing permutations of First Amendment rights, acknowledging the right and the need of the people to be in the streets, in the sidewalks, in the parklands, from the labor struggles through the, through the civil rights era, through the anti-Vietnam War era. And now there's this shift that's taking place in these other areas, these other branches of government, to try and restrict the ability of people to speak out, to try and shut down the movement by other means. And that's really what we're seeing across the board here. I want to stay with you, Mara, real quick before I go back to Amy. This seems like the pendulum going back and forth throughout American history, and it's always a consequence of people fighting. I'm looking at a document. I was sort of researching how free speech was restricted at different points. In the time period, in the decades just prior to the Civil War that ended slavery, in these same southern states like Georgia, in response to an overwhelming submission of petitions to the U.S. House of Representatives in support of abolitionist legislation, the government was able to actually pass laws in these states that made it illegal, punishable as a criminal offense to advocate for the end of the enslavement of human beings. And again, this was just prior to the Civil War that eventually ended, at least legally, slavery, except, of course, for incarcerated people. Anyway, real quick comment from you, and then I want to go back to Abby and ask her a little bit more about how Israel and why Israel views BDS as such a threat. The idea of democracy, something that we all appreciate and fight for and want to see true democracy, is based on the idea that the people are heard, that the people have the ability to speak. And when you see these laws and like what you're talking about before the Civil War and what we see every time there is a resurgence or a surge of people who are looking at society as it is, or looking at US foreign policy as it is, and saying, this is not acceptable to us. And we as a people, as the American people, are going to stand up and struggle peacefully, nonviolently, whatever it takes to make 
a difference, then you have these repressive measures that are completely undemocratic. They are the opposite of democracy to try and punish and suppress any movement for justice. That's what's happening. And I want to just add quickly one point to what Abby was saying earlier, because it's factually really important for people to conceptualize what happened in Georgia. There was actually a representative from the Israeli consulate who was present in the committee room when they were making deliberations and proposals about this law. And a representative actually pointed them out and said that they were consulting with them. So you have elected state representatives openly saying that they're consulting, taking direction from a foreign power. That is just not something that I would think that most people in the United States would tolerate from any government under any circumstances. And yet that's what's going on here. Really, really amazing when you think about it. I mean, the whole first three years of the Trump presidency was taken up by the Democrats going nuts over the fact that they argued that Russia, through a, a troll farm in St. Petersburg, had interfered in the American election process such that we had Donald Trump as president. And even though there were unfounded claims, the idea of foreign interference in American politics would be pretty much considered verboten, and certainly under these circumstances of the last couple of years, really raising red flags, Abby. But the idea that Israel could send its representatives to directly and openly interfere in the political process in the United States, it's kind of like, hey, that's cool. Well, especially when you have this constant noise being generated from the conservative media machine and, you know, so-called conservative martyrs who are saying we are the victims of cancel culture and, you know, free speech, this outcry over free speech, when really, what is the cancel culture in this country? What laws exist that actually suppress and restrict certain types of speech. We're not talking about heckling people on college campuses, right? Or Twitter banning Donald Trump. We're talking about state laws that restrict and ban certain types of constitutionally protected free speech. And that is why this is so important because this is unmatched. This is the fight right here of free speech in this country. This is the most criminalized and policed speech there is is pro-Palestine speech. That is why this fight is crucial. That is why we need to push this forward. And hopefully this case can be used as a vehicle, as an inspiration for many more plaintiffs to challenge these laws. You know, I have been working on pro-Palestine advocacy for the last 10, 15 years of my political career. I am very passionate about social justice and anti-racism. And this is a deeply moral deeply held moral belief of mine. And I've explicitly advocated and encouraged BDS throughout that time because I'm taking a cue from the Palestine Solidarity Movement. I'm taking a cue as an American white ally of what I can do as a child of the empire. And BDS is what we've been called to do. We know it works we know it works from Mara's historical examples. We know that boycotts are what has brought down racist institutional injustices before, not only in this country, but around the world. We see BDS campaigns mounting around the world. We see divestment campaigns working. We're not talking about sanctioning, you know, food and medicine from Israelis like the U.S. empire does to Venezuela. No, this is about political isolation. This is exactly what we're calling, similarly to what happened in South Africa, where you can't go anywhere 
if you have an Israeli passport, you're not welcome into academic conferences or concerts and stuff like that. And similarly, if you are an American artist, you're going to be shamed if you go and participate in this apartheid regime and profit off of it. The government of Israel knows this very clearly. They are trying to hold back the tide of justice. They know that public consciousness is on fire. They know they are at a breaking point. They know how important that mindset is in order to maintain their status quo, in order to maintain U.S. subsidies for the apartheid regime. And that is why they have pushed these state legislatures to enact these laws, because they know that sympathy is on the rise. And especially with this latest violent onslaught, I mean, we really have reached a point of no return. You can't go back in time and say, no, 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 it's not an apartheid regime. I mean, we have official human rights organizations as well as sitting members of Congress already having declared this. So now the conversation becomes, well, what do we do about the apartheid regime? And they know their narrative has slipped, Brian, and they know BDS is coming full throttle. And again, I mean, this couldn't come at a more urgent time. And I just hope that, you know, I'm not expecting conservatives and Republicans to talk about this, but it really should be at the forefront of everyone's minds because it is the most stark example of subversion and undermining directly of free speech rights in this country. Mara, the Israeli government, their perception of BDS, which is clearly a peaceful movement, is that it represents an existential threat. Otherwise, they wouldn't be this kind of an effort to influence state legislatures and to make it illegal and to require people to sign loyalty oaths to a foreign government, even if they have no intention of dealing with the issue, just like Abby was going to the university to speak about independent media and media literacy. She wasn't going to speak about Palestine, but the requirement that this be signed, it shows that there's a great fear that BDS could actually be very, very effective. And I think it's important because what we're talking about here is peaceful protest. In the case of South Africa, Nelson Mandela was arrested with the help of the CIA. The African National Congress was labeled a terrorist organization. It was only in 1988 that the U.S. Congress passed a resolution saying that Nelson Mandela was not a terrorist. Dick Cheney, by the way, voted no on that. That was 1988. <laughs> Now, it was clear that while there was an armed struggle going on in South Africa by the ANC, and thus the apartheid government labeled it consequently terrorist, and the U.S. government shared that label. They labeled Nelson Mandela and the ANC as terrorists. Once the movement really focused, not that it didn't have an armed struggle still in South Africa, but the movement shifted, and it shifted to a global plane, and it shifted to a kind of struggle, a form of struggle that was not did not involve weapons. It involved mass protests and the deliberate decision of people not to buy things from South Africa or not to play at South African concerts. And in a way, that was the beginning of the end, or really the end of the end for the formal system of apartheid. It's so important from a historical point of view to see how these labels, these designations, this language of people fighting for social change turns in different directions. But again, we're treating a movement that's absolutely peaceful. It's telling people don't buy things that come from the state of Israel or don't sell things or don't perform there. And yet it's being treated with the same level as if it's a terrorist threat. 
Yes, and there's obvious reason for that, as you've described. When you think about how people can help others struggle for liberation, the peaceful nonviolent boycott is this most powerful, powerful tool. It's powerful in terms of consciousness. It's powerful in terms of impact. Anyone and everyone can do this. It's lawful. And that's why they need to criminalize it. Anyone that you know tries to provide support to Palestinians who are suffering so much and you know who desperately need medicine or other supplies, well, that's been so heavily criminalized in the United States. Like you think about what happened to the Holy Land Foundation, and they've done everything they can to shut down every opportunity for people to try and help people that are suffering. I mean, really suffering. Anyone that looks at what's going on there can see how really criminal the situation is, and you would have to stand up for justice. This is a way people can do it. They're trying to criminalize it, but our First Amendment and fighting for that First Amendment is not going to let them make this a penalty for people. We're not going to allow this to happen. This is a major struggle in the United States, and it's crucial that people have this ability and this capacity to speak out. And this ruling is something that tells people everywhere across the United States that one, you can do this, and two, from the perspective of advocates, you should do this. So this is a very important moment, and it's something that everyone can embrace. Yes, thank you, Mara. And Abby, will give you the last word. While you weren't going to speak that night in Georgia about Palestine, you have done so much work, and the Empire Files has done so much work in support of justice and self-determination for Palestine. And I want to recommend to our listeners that if they don't yet know that the movie that you and Mike Preisner at the Empire Files made, Gaza Fights for Freedom about the Great March of Return, a peaceful protest that was met with extreme violence in 2018. You've made that free now, accessible to all, and it's really truly gone viral. How can people find it? Absolutely. You can go to our YouTube channel. Unfortunately, YouTube's throttling the movie and it's making it very hard to find it. So you actually have to go directly to our YouTube channel and Empire Files to find it. But check it out and please share the word because basically what the Great March of Return shows is that it doesn't matter what you do. This was a peaceful, nonviolent action and they were still gunned down by snipers. And so that whole victim mentality from the Israeli state just absolutely doesn't hold up, especially in light of that massacre, Brian. But I do want to end with this. I spoke to Miko Paulette, a good friend of ours, and I'm sure a friend of this show as well, whose grandfather was one of the founders of the state of Israel. His name was actually on the Declaration of Independence or whatever the similar signing document is. And he made a very good point. He said, you know, Zionism is in the same category as anti-Semitism, is in the same category as white supremacism. All of these ideologies are based on the marginalization and hatred of the other. It's an otherization of a marginalized group of people. So this agenda and this weaponization of something that is a huge and growing problem because of the rise of right-wing extremism, which is anti-Semitism, it's not working anymore to have this weaponized and deflected so that progressives and liberals feel like they can't criticize the war crimes and atrocities being committed by a state government. 
And that's not a tenable thing anymore. And so now we just need to move forward with how can we actually hold the state accountable. And that's where BDS comes in. And so I just hope that everyone can join Palestine solidarity movements and actions because the protests are incredible. And now we need to mount that pressure campaign and figure out what comes next. Thank you so much, Brian, for having me on. Thank you. And for those who want to join a protest, there's going to be a national march on Washington. Should be very huge. It'll be at the Lincoln Memorial, 3 p.m. this Saturday. We were joined by Abby Martin. She produces video and podcast resources at The Empire Files. Check out Abby's work at TheEmpireFiles.tv. If you want to support their work, you can by becoming a patron at Patreon.com forward slash Empire Files. We were also joined by her attorney, Mara Verhayden Hilliard. She is the executive director of the Washington, D.C.-based Partnership for Civil Justice Fund. If you want to support the work of the Partnership for Civil Justice Fund in their work on this case and many, many other cases defending people who are involved in protests, people who have been arrested, people who are fighting for their rights and our rights, go to justiceonline.org. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We will be back Tuesday. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. <laughs>